Hello, and welcome to one of a series of podcasts exploring key issues or areas of interest in impact evaluation today. We hope you enjoy the podcast, and please don't forget to tweet your thoughts at hashtag ImpactFrameworks. Thank you for listening. My name's Mark Taylor. I'm Head of Strategic Partnerships at NIHR CCF, and I'm joined today by Dr. Danny Kingsley, scholarly communication consultant and visiting fellow at the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and Helen Bingham, who's Head of Knowledge Services and Technology Enhanced Learning at Health Education England. During this podcast, we're going to discuss the importance of libraries and impact assessment and the use of grey literature. That is literature, including from government departments and agencies, civil society and non-governmental organisations, academic centres and departments, and private companies and consultants, which is not produced or published through traditional commercial or academic routes, but which can be central to impact assessments and case studies. Danny, it's been great to read the article, the paper you've just had published, the uh, impact opportunity for academic libraries through uh, grey literature. Um, and that's really what led to this uh, uh, podcast that we're doing today. So I wanted to ask you, what are the main barriers for libraries becoming more involved with research as a whole, but more specifically, research impact? Yes, this is interesting. I think that one of the things that really defines an academic library as different to other types of library is that academic libraries are involved with the production of research as well as the consumption of it. And that is uh, unique. Usually libraries are focused on consumption. And I think that the concept of a library in many people's minds, including with the research community, is a quiet place where there's lots of books. And so people do associate libraries with consumption. So the reason why I sort of think that the research impact has an opportunity for research libraries is because over the last 20 years or so, as we've sort of moved into open access and um, the more scholarly communication research support across the research life cycle, uh, the libraries have started changing what they're doing or, or adding to their, their offerings um, into support of that publication and production process. And I feel that the impact uh, aspect of it is part of that broader life cycle. So when we come to what are the barriers, I think the barriers tend to be per- perception of what a library is and does. And so th- there is a bit of a marketing gap I think that libraries haven't jumped into where they really need to sell themselves more as partners in research rather than servants to research I think. So, so Helen from, from your point of view within the uh, National Health Service in, in the UK uh, does that does that resonate with you or do you find that there are similar barriers that perception? Yeah to some extent I would say that NHS library knowledge services are also involved in the production of research, albeit at uh, a smaller scale, possibly, than their colleagues in academic libraries. Quite often there there may be a recognition from organisations that those libraries exist and exist to support the research cycle. And often there is no formal recognition through funding. Uh, NHS libraries the focus is very much education, clinical care, management, decision-making. But research support is very much what they do day in, 
day out. And often they have really strong, practical working relationships with the practitioners who are involved in research. So those those links are all in place. But I think I would agree with you, Danny, that in the NHS as well, uh, at sort of strategic level and organisational level, there might not be that recognition. And certainly there isn't the funding flowing through. So there's no, not necessarily an expectation that this is a key role for library services. The, of course, the NHS does do research. There is a distinction with a university library in that there is both the research and the teaching aspect. And there is a sort of structural barrier to the involvement in research in that in almost all cases, libraries are report into the Deputy Vice-Chancellor or Pro-Vice-Chancellor for academic, which is the teaching side of the university, rather than the Pro-Vice-Chancellor or Deputy Vice-Chancellor for research. So there is this uh, structural assumption around the primary role of the library that is based on the sort of student side rather than the researcher side of the community. Yeah, that's so. There's a there's a direct parallel, isn't there? Because most funding for NHS library services flows through education, and um, the other. But also, there's clearly within the NHS very strong focus on clinical care, management, decision making as well, and research is. You know, that we have to work harder to make those those links and get that recognition. That's part of the role and remit. I think one of the issues also would be from from my time uh, on, on the coalface is that um, uh, libraries within uh, the NHS, within medical schools, are neither one thing nor the other in that particular sense. Um, so they they are used obviously by staff um, for um, Helen, as you say, for clinical uh, reasons, but but equally by clinical researchers who inhabit the same space and have the same buildings, which does therefore sort of lead on to the, the question, I think we're talking about um, those perspectives of whether funders could play a, a larger role in encouraging institutions to utilise libraries, their full potential. Um, so, so what do you guys think about whether that's possible um, to the funders could play a larger role here? Certainly funders have caused the libraries to really step up, particularly in the UK, uh, in relation to being involved in the research uh, endeavour because of the policies around open access and requirements to make research outputs openly available. Uh, so I held a position at Cambridge University Libraries, which uh, was responsible for meeting some of those policy requirements. And when that position was created, I was answering to both the librarian and the head of the research office because the, the requirement was meeting policies, which is normally in the, in the um, purvey of the research office, but it involved dealing with artefacts, which is something the library is used to doing. So it was really straddling both of those areas. Um, so what the funders require in their policies then makes a big difference about what the library's involvement is. And so if the funders are saying, we're going to give you lots of money to pay for articles to be made open access, that's one thing. But if they say you need to collect this material and put, make it available in a repository, that's a distinctive uh, action and activity the library can do that no one else can do really in the university. Whereas if you're just managing a fund to pay for open access, that could be managed out of the research office. So it, the policy determines what needs to happen and where then that is best placed within an institution. And I think Helen's response will be 
quite different because of the, the funding dynamic is different in the NHS. Helen, we're all ears. So your question, could could funders play a larger role in encouraging, encouraging institutions to utilise libraries? I would say yes, for sure, in the case of the NHS. And that actually, if research funders could have a role in ensuring that NHS organisations take a bigger role here. Um, if only a small proportion of the funding that is made available for research across the NHS, the billions that is made available for research could flow to libraries, they would be better placed to support the whole research cycle. At the moment, it's quite patchy. So larger NHS organisations, which may be affiliated to a university will be much better placed to support their researchers and would-be researchers in their NHS organisation than those in other sorts of um, uh, NHS settings. Um, because the funding tends to apply, tends to flow to individuals um, rather than to employers in sort of block grants, then um, the, the kind of opportunity to uh, ensure that some of that funding flows to, to the support infrastructure is, is often lost in the NHS. There was a very distinct difference between what was allowed to be done with money that was provided through block grants from uh, Research Councils UK, which is now UK Research and Innovation, and uh, the, the Charities Open Access Fund, which included the Wellcome Trust. So the RCUK funds were allowed, you were allowed to use part of those funds to pay for staffing and for uh, infrastructure if it helped your compliance with the requirements to make work openly accessible. That was not the case with the COEF funds. So those funds were purely only able to be used by, uh, for the payment of article processing charges. When this was brought up at a meeting, uh, this is now several years ago, at the Wellcome Trust. The Wellcome Trust made the comment that they were already providing significant funds to the institutions for the purpose of research and that the institutions should then um, you know, use some of those funds for the payment of staff for this purpose. Uh, I don't know if that was a, a naive comment, not realising the way funds are actually distributed within an institution um, or whether it was just a steer, um, but certainly when research funds are provided into an institution, most of them, mostly they do not find their way towards places like the library to support this sort of area. It's, uh, it just doesn't happen. So, yeah, you, you are absolutely right, Helen, in terms of allowing um, some of that funding to be used for this purpose makes an enormous difference to whether or not services can actually be provided or because... Otherwise, the institution will need to actually make other funds available. And I know from personal experience that um, extracting those funds from institutions is extraordinarily challenging. So if we go back to, to actually the first question, the, the perceptions of what libraries can and can't do, um, uh, we come back to that again as being a barrier for libraries becoming more involved, um, that in many ways people don't perceive them uh, in that sense. Uh, that uh, even when funds are available or when funds are available for research, uh, there is not a, a particular stream to support libraries when it comes to uh, 
being a repository of information for monitoring um, and management of research outputs. So there's a stream here, uh, as far as I can see during this conversation, about barrier after barrier. Would that be right? There's, there is a lack of understanding, I feel, amongst the academic community of the broader understanding and knowledge of scholarly communication as an entity in its own right, as something that is itself an object of, uh, of, of research, of knowledge, of expertise and skill. Um, so I, I describe this as I know teaching, I've been to school. Um, so that academics feel because they have some practical experience of the scholarly public publishing system because they are publishing, they may be doing peer review, they may be doing some editing, that they therefore have the knowledge about it, this, this meta, broader understanding. And so they don't necessarily see that there is that broader understanding uh, at all. And even if they do, they don't necessarily think that that knowledge and understanding would be held within a library community because librarians aren't researchers, so what would they know? So this is, it's very difficult to, to get across to, to the research community that the people who work in this space are highly, highly trained and have an enormous level of expertise. And so I know that I've had arguments with the university um, administration over the years where there seems to be this sort of perception that you can just get another staff member, you know, from somebody working out at the checkout at Tesco and give them half an hour's training and they'll be okay. Uh, when it's really there's a six-month opportunity loss uh, when you're bringing in a new staff member in this sort of area because of the complexities associated with much of it. Um, so there is that, there are barriers there about not even really comp comprehending how complex uh, and skilled this area is. Under those circumstances, who should be responsible for ensuring that uh, all outputs, including grey literature, are managed within the repository? It's not going to be the researchers themselves if, if the unconscious bias is, um, as you say, Danny, um, I know about teaching because I went to school. Well, there's a couple of questions in there because it's, it's who, who should do it, um, but also even should it be done. Uh, so there is, uh, when I first started working in this area, which was now many, many years ago, um, I was putting together and, and rebooting the repository of the university I was working for. And so uh, we were looking at sort of policies around what could go into that repository. And initially the university was saying, well, we only want things that can be claimed for the equivalent of ERA. Um, ERA is Excellence in Research for Australia and REF is the Research Excellence Framework in the UK. So if things that could be claimed in those sorts of um, sort of processes which are all, of course, already in the public domain in some way. Um, they are, you know, they might be behind a subscription, but they are published. I, we won that argument that we wanted a broader range of material in the repository, and this is where we start talking about grey literature, because that is where the, the value of the repository really comes to the fore, because this is material that would otherwise uh, just sit on um, either in a drawer or sit on sort of departmental websites as things like working papers. Um, and when they do sit on departmental websites as working papers, they usually sit there with breakable URLs. They're not properly indexed. You can't actually find them through a search engine and so on and so forth. So even quite organised grey literature that is valued by the research community is poorly managed by it. 
So getting that material in is sort of like a no-brainer. Um, but then you start moving into wider uh, areas of grey literature and that obviously theses are considered to be grey literature, but it might be um, sort of blog posts or it could be um, an article written for a professional magazine that is related to your work but is discarded and not thought of as valuable by the academic community because it doesn't count for promotion. So those are things that are, we should be capturing because they are the discourse around the research process. And, and at Cambridge University, there's much excitement and work done around the Darwin manuscripts. So there's a digitisation program that is pulling together, it's been going for many, many years, pulling together all of his manuscripts that he had collect, written in and collected over the years that you know led to his, his seminal works. Now, the Darwin manuscripts of today is this grey literature. Is it, It's the, the discussions that go on in blogs and in social media, there, it might be email correspondence, it could be uh, various sort of conference proceedings that aren't formally then published and so on. And we're kind of letting that disappear and we really should be capturing it uh, into repositories. So there's this sort of, I think there's this kind of trust in technology that, that you know, it's all right, Google will look after it. And <laughs> that's not, 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 not a well-directed trust, I don't think, for the long term. Well, well, no, because by definition, that would suggest no curation. Uh, and I think anyone who's uh, uh, used any form of search engine knows how unreliable they can be, I guess. Helen, what are your thoughts about the responsibility for all of this? OK, well, I mean, I do think that employers, certainly in the NHS, have a role in that they kind of shouldn't be giving out money for or or giving people time off in order to participate in quality improvement projects or service evaluation or, or, or research projects without committing to capturing at least a minimum data set uh, into a repository. But I think that this is an area where, in the lack of funding or, or other you know, formal recognition, NHS library services are really already stepped into the space because grey literature is really so important in healthcare. And perhaps, you know, in contrast to the academic sector, it's relatively much better valued, you know, structured investigations, quality improvement initiatives, practitioner research, local guidelines, the kind of the near research elements, if you will, um, uh, poster presentations and, and, and that kind of kind of thing. And so well, Libraries, NHS library staff have got involved in institutional repositories, an increasing number of them are, then quite often it is around that non-traditional non research publications. And um, so they, they are proactive in that area because almost by definition, it's more important to those who are working close to the, the action, as it were, in healthcare settings and that type of research is more accessible to a larger proportion of the healthcare workforce um, than those who are really clinical academic researchers affiliated to universities who might be very focused on ensuring that their publication gets uh, published in a high impact journal and you know into um, a, a kind of high profile repository. So there are um, cultural acceptance issues around grey literature, I think, is what I'm hearing uh, here. I, I think for anyone listening, 
a, a definition of grey literature might be information produced uh, on all levels of government, academia, business and industry in electronic and print formats, not controlled by commercial publishing, i.e. where publishing is not the primary activity of the producing body. So, uh, but, but I think it is interesting for, for hearing from both of you that there would be acceptance depending on on the status of the great literature. So Darwin, that's one thing, blogs is something else, uh, but also the, the culture that might be using it. So within healthcare, uh, it's always been that way, uh, but outside uh, there might be some sniffiness uh, around the use of great literature at all, let alone within impact assessment itself. So can I ask over and above uh, that very broad sweep, uh, what would be the barriers around making grey literature be perceived as worthy of being included in library repositories in the first place? I'm thinking of what the objections were when we were having those conversations all those years ago about what was allowed to be put into the repository. And one of the arguments for keeping it within the material that we would be putting forward for the assessment process was that there was a concern that if uh, people were allowed to put whatever they wanted into the repository, then it might uh, cause a reputational problem for the university if people put rubbish in. Um, I, I felt that that was a spurious argument because the reputational risk was probably far closer to the actual author who was responsible for providing the material than to the institution. Um, and so we had a working group where we tried to work, tried to define what scholarly work was. So there was this idea that we would only have scholarly work in the repository. And so we had to talk about what was scholarly work. And because we had a cross-section of research areas there, um, writing from things like manu musical manuscripts um, to through to uh, areas where a big part of their output is newspaper articles because it's important for them to get messages out into the general public. And so we ended up with a definition that a scholarly work was something that a scholar thought was a scholarly work, um, So, which is sort of a non-definition in some ways, but it, it, it defies de defining um, and what looks like a scholarly work to one person is not to the other. So, so part of the issue is that there are very strong disciplinary differences. Um, even the concept of a, of a conference is, is very different depending on the discipline. In some disciplines, a conference is the place that you publish all your fancy work, whereas in others, a conference is a nice weekend away on a you know, desert island where you might have you know, two hours of meetings and the rest of the time you're just drinking pina coladas or whatever. So, so it becomes very difficult to define these things on an institutional level because if you're an institution that covers multiple disciplines, then you've got you've got that um, academic tribes and territories issue about not understanding where somebody else is coming from. So it, it gets very tricky. Universities are, are tricky places. The the word university implies universal, when really it's just a, a sort of a bunch of fiefdoms. You know, people <laughs> a loose a loose bunch of egos. I don't know. I don't know what what the best way of describing a university is. Uh, fantastic. Uh, five terms, I think, is, is is a very accurate description in so many ways. Heather, what about your thoughts about um, the barriers for making grey literature being perceived as worthy? I mean, within the NHS, it seems like that that's less of an issue. Are, are there times when it is? Well, yeah, I mean, there still is, you know, for, um, you know, for many uh, clinicians, um, wishing to sort of progress their careers there there you know it's a strong drive to publish in high impact journals that has to be that has to be 
said, so I wouldn't want to um, say that the, the culture, elitism, academic kudos thing isn't isn't an issue because you know in some areas it is, but probably less so um, in the NHS. There is a little bit of reticence for sharing. Danny, you mentioned there about reticence, you know, reputational risk of an institution being seen to be affiliated to research that's not that great. And in the NHS, some of the reticence comes around sharing um, some kind of um, research that might not be, um, you know, not, might not have proved successful or even might have exposed some sort of flaws in, you know, um, patient um patient safety you know um, for, as a for instance it's that kind of reputational um risk that can sometimes come into play but i think on a very practical basis barriers include the fact that this type of content is more difficult to capture in the first place that there can be sort of you know metadata repository limitations you kind of have to push and squeeze um to make some of these um, these types of resource fit into repositories and then also be surfaced in a, in a helpful way. So when you look at the sorts of um, search um, discovery services that um, we want to be able to uh, surface repository content and, and the way that AI is now being used, trained um, to um, to search across this type of content. Uh, there's a bit more involved in training AI to search across, you know, posted content and, and pulling out, you know, the relevant concepts and abstracts, for instance, as opposed to, you know, nice, highly structured, uh, uh, traditionally published journal articles. Do you think that um, people who work within impact assessments um, and those who believe in the power of grey literature are, in fact, natural allies. Uh, a lot of impact assessments aren't published in traditional journals in that particular sense. They are themselves or could be perceived uh, uh, as grey literature themselves. So is there some form of grand alliance that's possible here um, between those who are involved in the impact assessment and, and those who believe that the grey literature library repositories have uh, value, not just within research and education, but within the impact assessment community itself. One of the things that came up in conversations when I was working with one of the universities on, on this impact work was uh, we were using a, some software that collects uh, impact uh, evidence. And so you can put it into this, into, into this software and then you can sort of move it around in different ways and sort of create links between them. Things um, it's it, it's effectively a repository, but it's not public facing. And the one group that was doing work on cities research, and that ranges from things like um, coastal erosion to putting in bike lanes to, or you know, towers creating shadows and all sorts of things. It's quite broad. But what a lot of the people in the room got quite excited about was that the collection of the information that they needed to pull together to make the impact uh, argument was also the material that they needed to collect together for their professional registration. So they, they were members of sort of professional organisations and their certification. Um, and so normally they wouldn't collect that, the kinds of information that they need to for that certification within the university context because it's the sort of thing that doesn't normally count 
for things like promotions or, or um, different roles because it's things like publication in a professional magazine as opposed to a journal. So they were seeing that this collection of research impact material for the research impact purpose could help them in a professional sense as well. So there was another use for it. So then we started talking about the option of those um, those articles in magazines themselves being put into the repository, which then allows the, the, them to have a DOI associated with it, a digital object identifier, which allows them then to be found and an altmetric score to be uh, attached to it so you can start to see who's, who's reading it or who's talking about that article. Um, and so suddenly this whole other ability to to give this work a new life um, and to be able to track it opened up. The we, we spoke to the magazines in, in about this and they were quite happy for us to be a, put the material into the repository and make it openly accessible. I was a bit surprised about that, but it turned out that this was a whole other unexpected aspect of doing this work. So that's one part of it, that the repository can hold this material, the repository can share this material or could just hold it as a repository um, and not make it openly available. But there is another angle to this, which is that librarians are very good at finding information. That's their real expertise. And so if you are a researcher and you want to demonstrate some research impact and you think, okay, well, I know that we uh, spoke at this sort of uh, conference and I know we gave some town hall meetings for the council and we did X, Y and Z, but I don't have the documentation for that. The library can help find that information. That's what they're really good at. So there's a kind of double part of involvement that the library potentially has in this impact space, I think. A lot of impact assessment is looking for changes in, in reality. So not a, a case of something which is reported, we've done something, uh, there's a new guideline, but evidence that that guideline is being used. So from an NHS perspective within NHS libraries, um, is there something more, is there, is there a, an opportunity there to help with impact assessment? Because the evidence of uh, theory into practice might be kept there, might be within the grey literature that an NHS library would hold. I think that this uh, is you know, a real sort of opportunity for NHS library services, um, fits very well with their role and remit. Um, basically, you know, the, the reason for NHS library services existing is to mobilise evidence and knowledge into practice. That is their role. That is how Health Education England, who champion NHS library knowledge services, um, position their role. And it's very much about in, encouraging um, them to evidence the impact of their work and um, so what we are you know, we're collecting you know huge amount of um, case studies vignettes about where library knowledge services have worked with practitioners to get uh, research or evidence into practice and that makes a difference and that is how we are working with NHS libraries to justify and promote their their value and it's a and that's a win-win really for uh, the, the researcher and the practitioner and the librarian who enabled that research to translate into 
practice with an outcome for patients and um, the NHS more generally. So I've got a final question for you, for you both. Um, given the rise of digital libraries, uh, is it an existential necessity for libraries to become key players in the, the impact infrastructure? I think this is an enormous question in some ways um, because it does speak to uh, the question of what what is an academic library in an open access world. Um, uh, the one of the sort of sort of fun facts that we discovered at Cambridge there's two sets of digital material in in the library in Cambridge. The, there is the collection of, of research that's been developed uh, within Cambridge and has been published by Cambridge researchers that's in the repository, and there's also the digitisation of the collections held within the library, and both of those are available, openly available to the public. And looking at the usage of those, 85% of the usage comes from outside the UK. So there is a huge appetite for this material. So what as we move into a digital world and a particularly an open world, the library changes its focus from being a gated collection of information for its own community to a shared information across it. We, we become one enormous library around the world. It's, it's um, instead of being individual libraries. And so if you're thinking in that kind of way, then it absolutely has to be at the centre of this because that's where all the information is held. There is no space for having it held in somebody's back drawer or on somebody's, you know, um, personal hard drive. That's not where it needs to be. We need to have it in the, you know, the one big library and that your node is your node into that big library. Your local library in your institution is the node into the big global one. So, yes, I think that absolutely it has to be central. Yeah, and I would agree from an NHS library uh, perspective, but I think that this has been the case for NHS library services for a while. I think if they'd continued only to, only to be focused on um, accessing information and finding information, they would have probably died out a little while ago. Um, so their role, as I've mentioned previously, is very much about getting research into practice. It's making sure that uh, the research is kind of actionable and can, and can translate into practice. And it's librarians' role in, um, in supporting that process that is really, really critical in the NHS. And that's where they really add value. Well, can I just uh, thank uh, both Danny and Helen uh, for their time today on this podcast? Uh, I'd also like uh, to thank um, Alex Zabala Findlay and Natalia Chapman, graduate trainees at NIHR, who helped me put the question set for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It's one of four in a series exploring different aspects of impact culture. Please return to the website to discover the others. And don't forget to tweet us your comments and questions to hashtag ImpactFrameworks. Once again, thank you for listening.